0: Hello, and welcome to the World Fellows podcast. My name is Emma Skye, and I'm director of the World Fellows program at Yale. My guest today is Alinda Labrupulo, a journalist from Greece. Alinda,
1: welcome to the podcast. It's very nice to be here, Emma.
0: So you've had a long career reporting for international media from Greece. What was it? growing up that made you want to be a journalist?
1: It was primarily this quest for truth. So the the conventional reason, I think, that most journalists start out, I felt that by telling people what's going on, uh, this would be a way of stopping further injustice in the world and, you know, prompting governments and others to act. I mean, I realize now that this was... A romantic notion in many ways. But this was a driving force. I felt, well, if people know what happens, you know, if we know about the atrocities of World War II, they can't possibly happen again. So it was very much my initial driving force. And then, well, then life and work kicked in. And my first job was at a small newspaper in Athens. I was straight out of university. I had finished my MA at King's College in London in war studies, and this was the late 90s. So the war in Kosovo was at its peak. It was very close to home in that sense. It was a time that thousands of Kosovo Albanians were fleeing the border, um, crossing over to Albania. And I felt this was a story I really wanted to tell Overall, Greek media at the time were not devoting any time to these uh, refugees. Um, They were actually quite openly pro-Serb because Greece had uh, very different uh, relations to to Serbia than many other countries. I mean, it has very strong Orthodox um, links, for one thing. So I really felt this was my mission to go out there and meet these people and really bring that story home. It took a long time to persuade my paper to actually give me the permission to go and to support me. But they did. And just before leaving, I made a leap for my standard as a very young and new uh, journalist of actually reaching out to the biggest uh, paper in the country and speaking to the foreign editor who said, OK, well, if you go out there and you have a good story, we'll run it. So off I went, um, very unprepared for what I would find. This very first encounter with displaced people was a complete shock. It was very different to anything I had ever experienced. But at the same time, it was very powerful. So I did manage to tell their stories, to bring back pictures, to bring back a, a lot of color, a lot of the reality on the ground of what was going on. And I run a number of stories for my paper, and I managed to get one story into that main leading broadsheet. And the reaction was great. You know, people did react. They did reach out. There was some conversation as a result of it. I can't promise much in terms of actual changes, but there was dialogue. And this just fueled me to to want to do this more and more and to believe that journalism can Have an impact in changing the world.
0: Because that was, you know, that's always the question that you go out there, you're telling these people's stories, but the so what? Does journalism really
1: actually make a difference? I believe it does. Maybe it doesn't make the difference that I thought it would, but for me, it's a very fundamental. access to information, to being able to have different narratives and and different stories. And really that um, that idea that we do know what's going on. Um, And there is a fundamental link to democracy and democratic values for me in journalism. There is that motto that the Washington Post has, which says, democracy dies in darkness. For me, just that one phrase really captures what journalism is really all about. It also happens to be a newspaper I've been working with for over 10 years and whose values I really uh, respect. But really it is about that because we do live in a world where there is a lot of information. We're not going to stop communicating with each other. We keep sending articles. We keep sending all sorts of information. And it's a question of what the sources of this information are. And this is one of my big concerns, that right now we often read something and we don't remember where it's from. So we don't know if it is some guy who wrote this in his living room because of whatever beliefs, or this is a valid news source. I think this is a deeply problematic relationship. But I think for big media outlets, all they can do is be out there and continue to tell the story.
0: So you have been out there. You've reported on the Greek financial crisis and later the refugee crisis in Europe, how do you make complex issues di- digestible for your audience? And when you're reporting, who do you see as your audience?
1: It is very complicated to try and engage a global audience in the way that the networks work. And I primarily cover the, Greek refu- the both the Greek refugee crisis and the Greek financial crisis for an international audience. Uh, The Greek financial crisis was particularly difficult because I covered it primarily for CNN. It is a network that is global, so it appeals to people. People from all sides of the globe might be watching at any given second, and we're talking about millions of people watching at any given second, uh, with a very different perspective of, of the world and a very limited understanding of each country. Greece was not a country that was in the news all that much previously, uh, before the financial crisis. It was there, you know, in relation to archaeology stories, um, travel stories. But the essence of what was happening in the country was never there. You know, issues of uh, bureaucracy, corruption were never really addressed. So when the financial crisis hit, uh, the global media, to begin with, I had no idea how to respond. They didn't know enough about the country. Um, so people like myself, were put in a in a position of trying to explain what the country is about and also what the people were experiencing on a day-to-day basis. And for me, the best way to achieve this, at least that's what I saw in my experience, was to try to take that um, to a more local level, to Talk to what we'd refer to as the ordinary Greeks and what they're going through. So by understanding what happens to someone who loses their job, who loses any kind of financial security, I think that was the best way to really be able to make that connection between global audiences and what was actually happening on the ground. In essence, the big ideas were much more difficult to communicate. And by big ideas, I mean Populism, extremism, they were all on the rise in Greece during that period, and that was a lot harder to communicate, simply because when you look at something from so many different perspectives, you always have to find that common ground um, on how to do it. Um, I, I tried very hard. I hope I succeeded in some cases, but it took longer.
0: So what are the stories that really matter to you? How do you decide you know, what you're going to cover?
1: Being based where I am, which is Greece, uh, I've been looking primarily at the country and the region. One of the biggest um, stories that we had breaking out in 2015 mostly was the big refugee crisis, the European global um, refugee crisis, where Greece was again a protagonist. It was an easier story to cover in some aspects because people understand what the refugee crisis entails but the sheer side of it uh, was was immense and it also meant trying to make accessible to global audiences stories that were just gruesome that included family members you know breaking down in front of TV cameras, uh, talking about loved ones that perished at sea, uh, about mothers losing their children, just really harrowing stories. So although these were the kind of stories that people could of course understand um, much more easily, there was a sense of responsibility of how you tell these stories, without objectifying, first of all, the protagonists, without just making them sensational stories, um, just to attract audiences out there, how to preserve their dignity, and sometimes how to preserve their safety as well, Because for the case, in the case of uh, many Afghans, for example, you know, we really weren't able to show their faces or their names because you knew there may be repercussions back home. So this is a responsibility that as media, we really had to take. And in terms of choosing these stories, sometimes it's just a question of being there and who the people are. Uh, And sometimes it is a more um, complex, more creative um, environment of how you can take a general theme and portray it through the stories of people. Uh, for example, we did something on walls for the Washington Post, which won uh, the Innovation Innovative Storytelling Award in uh, 2017 in the U.S. And that was a story about border communities and arbitrary borders. So this was about locations and the people who tried to cross these borders and the people who live on either side of them. Um, So really, it's just creative ways of of telling the story.
0: Now, I know you also have a passion project, the Hotel Villa Rosa. (laughs) Tell us something about that.
1: Um, The Villa Rosa is very much a, a passion project. It is a very personal project at the same time. Uh, first of all, it's a centuries old uh, historic manor house. That's the Villa Rosa. It's in a beautiful coastal town in uh, western Greece, which is called Parga. And it's a property that has belonged to my family for generations. It is also the home of my great aunt Aphrodite, who was a pioneer of women's rights in Greece. She was one of the first women to be elected in local government and she's always been a figure of great uh, admiration for me while i was growing up i i wanted her legacy to live on she's been you know an example um so uh, wanting to bring her story out was one of the driving forces we have partly done that through a small digital museum that we now have online telling the story of the villarosa and its people and it, it's The building itself is remarkable. It's a building that's been through uh, World War II occupation. It's been the headquarters of the occupying forces. My aunt then turned it into a makeshift clinic um, and then a finishing school for girls. She really believed in helping less privileged people, so she created this school where young girls from the villages could come and learn very basic skills, sewing and um, you know, cooking. So then they can go and independently find work. So they don't uh, they don't uh, have to depend on men or other family members. Um, and this is Greece in the 50s. So you can understand why this woman was very much ahead of her time. So I felt I really wanted to to carry on uh, with her legacy, and at the same time I wanted the Villa Rosa to be a pilot for something else. I wanted it to be a place where eco-principles are used so we're showing what sustainable development is really like. I feel that the discourse there on sustainable tourism hasn't even started. You know a few European towns like Amsterdam or Venice may have raised it once or twice but it's a huge industry tourism and it is destroying large parts of the world as it goes along. So We wanted to create something that's an example of how you can do things differently. We created a small farm. We have a farm-to-table restaurant. We take people out to experience nature, to go diving or snorkeling. We talk about the environmental impact of what's going on. And I'm hoping that by showing that a project like this can be sustainable and it can actually be profitable, that this will be an example to how others can um, can can move their thinking in, in the way that they approach tourism. And that this can be a pilot for bigger things and for bigger entire communities on, on their approach to tourism.
0: Well, it's fantastic that you have an aunt called Aphrodite. So. What are your plans for the future?
1: You know, technology has given us so many new tools that we can experiment with. And I have been a journalist since the beginning of my career. And I remain a believer in the ethics of journalism. I just think that by now, there are so many new approaches to how we can make this something that people can relate to um, a lot more. I am considering writing and potentially producing a documentary on the financial crisis in Greece. As someone who has really lived this through, um, it so so closely reporting for you know the biggest news network out there every single day. Um, I feel that's a unique position to explain certain things to people. I also uh, feel that uh, the last years of COVID may have impacted our mobility and how we do things, but at the same time, they have opened a virtual environment of communicating. So I'm experimenting a lot on virtual productions and how to bridge that gap, how to make um, these experiences more immersive. And I believe that this is something that has a future and that has also a future in education. So being at Yale, we're, we're looking at education, we're looking at the discourse now, what are the key issues being related, uh, being, uh, being narrated, and how um, education is applied in many ways has been a fantastic starting point to what I hope will be a new journey of approaching both news, journalism, storytelling, and potentially virtual production too.
0: Well, we wish you all the best. When you go back to Greece and you continue with your journalism and with the Hotel Villa Rosa. Linda, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much. A pleasure talking to you, Emma.